And I do encourage you to get a hold of Lindsay and talk with her after the service about uh, how you might partner with her financially. She uh, uh, only needs a little bit more money and it'd be fully funded. And it would be great uh, for us as a church to step behind her and provide for that need. So um, we're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 3, beginning verse 22. Uh, together today. We're going to go down through chapter 4, verse 1. We've only got a couple more weeks in Colossians. Then we're going to hit Philemon for reasons I'll tell you about later. And then we're going to get into the rest of the book of Revelation. I didn't really want to get into Revelation while we're in lockdown and make everybody (laughs) even more freaked out than they otherwise would be. So we're going to, now that we're out of that, we'll get into uh, the book of Revelation later this summer, and we'll finish the whole book. It really is exciting to see how how Jesus brings about uh, great repentance and great salvation and also great judgment uh, along with uh, great rejoicing on the part of his people. So it's an exciting book, a fun book to study. Um, but uh, that's where we're headed. And today... I just want to draw your attention to these these two verses, and it's a topic that we don't normally think about or address. It's a topic of slavery. You know, if you love history the way that I do, it's always fun to think about as you go see various things. You know, whenever there's I go somewhere and they have a fort, I have to see it. I need to go crawl around in it. I've been to I've been to Central Europe, and I've gotten to walk around in some castles, and it's amazing to walk around in these places. And I want to go see the mews where they kept the falcons, and I want to see the kennels where they had the hounds. And you can kind of imagine yourself, you know, riding to the hounds, chasing a hare across the plains, and all this kind of thing, right? Because it's always more fun, and we always picture ourselves as lord of the manor, right? We picture ourselves living in that castle and being the nobleman. Right? We don't picture ourselves as the guy mucking out the stables and feeding the falcon and losing a finger and you know all of that kind of stuff. Right? We don't picture ourselves that way. But in reality, as you look at world history, most people until very recent times have lived lives on the bottom rungs of society. Most people. It wasn't until... Uh, it, really until the, around the, the, the time of the establishment of the United States of America, the people began to figure out this thing called capitalism, and, and the world began to crawl out of desperate poverty. And on top of that, throughout history, vast millions of people have been held in bondage by other people as slaves. Vast numbers of people. In fact, even today, millions of people around the world are still held in captivity as slaves. If you go to Saudi Arabia, they have a system there where they will bring in someone as domestic help and take their passport and probably not pay them and that person will be sleeping on the floor and not given any days off, not given uh, any uh, hours off, really, 
you are essentially a slave in everything but name. If you go to some of the darker corners of Peoria, you can find uh, these very seedy-looking massage parlors, they're called. And the women there are very often held in conditions virtually indistinguishable from slavery. If you go to China, you know, they have two million Uyghur people in concentration camps in western China. And in many of these camps, re-education camps all across China, they are forced to do things like make the clothes that are sold in places all across the United States. And they are made by slaves. Slavery is one of the worst things that humans have ever devised to do to one another. And it's been largely eliminated from Western society, apart from the sex trade, where it still flourishes. But open slavery has been eliminated from Western society, and so most Western uh, Pastors, most Western people, and most Western cultures don't even think about it. And I bring all this up today because the passage we're looking at confronts this issue of slavery head on. Because in the Colossian church, the Colossian church had within it a number of people who were slaves, and at least one guy whose name is the title of a New Testament book who was a slave owner. His name is Philemon. That's why we're going to look at him in a couple of weeks. Because God has some things to say specifically to this man who was a slave owner. In the Roman Empire of Paul's day, uh, Roman Empire as a whole, which basically encompassed everything from Britain to Iran, all the way across Europe, uh, all the way across North Africa, uh, one in six people were slaves. Within Italy itself, where the Roman Empire was, 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 had its center, where the capital was, uh, somewhere, depending on whose, whose measurement you follow, somewhere between three in ten and four in ten people were owned by someone else. And... Uh, up to 50% of the average Christian church congregation in the first century were people who were slaves. So this, this is a, an issue that is a live issue in the New Testament church, and, and they have to figure out how to deal with it. And typically because of the nature of our culture, which is different from that, when modern-day pastors come to a passage like this one, what most of them do, and I have done it, so I, I'm not indicting anybody here, is that we go, well, you know, we don't really have slavery today, so let's talk about your boss, and let's talk about being a good employee, and let's talk about being a good boss, because that's the context in which we operate and live. And that's not a bad application, by the way. There's, there, these things do apply to the employer-employee relationship, even if it's not as unjust as actual master-slave type relationship. It only feels like slavery. You can quit, right? 
Uh, they can stop paying you. You can tell them to go pound sand. And uh, you can part from one another, right? You go find another job. If you're a slave, you can't. And if we focus on that employer-employee dynamic, I think, though, that what we do is we miss some of what God intends to say to us in this passage about how to deal with unjust institutions and unjust people and what God intends to do uh, in us and to bring about transformation through the power of the gospel. And Jesus does it you'll be surprised to learn, or maybe not. Not by revolution, uh, not by violence, not by upending the existing social order, but by transforming the hearts of men and women and their actions toward one another. And so I want to show you this text because I think it has deep relevance today for us, even as we look around our own country and we see people responding to injustice in a variety of ways, some of which are Christian and some of which are not in those responses. And uh, what does God have to say about how to respond to injustice? So we got to look at this text. Before we do it, uh, I want to pray for us and for our time in the Word together. So if you join me in prayer. God, our Heavenly Father, we know that you are not neutral on the question of justice versus injustice. That you are a God who, who is a just judge and who brings about justice fully and finally for all your people and for all people who have ever lived. One day you will bring about an end to every wrong thing. And Father, we pray that we might have ears to hear and, and hearts that are open to receive that which your word speaks to us today. Help us, Father, to see the beauty of the gospel even in the worst of situations and people. And Father, we pray uh, that you would have your way with us today as we respond to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's see what the text says here. Colossians chapter 3, beginning verse 22, down to chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, if you look at this text, it divides pretty neatly into two sections. There's a, a section addressing uh, those who are slaves and talking about how Jesus transforms even slavery into serving Christ. And then it addresses the masters that are among them and 
talks about how it turns masters into servants. And so we're going to look at both parts of this. If you look at uh, the instructions to slave, verses 22 to 25, what you see there and what most people are shocked by is what you don't see. You don't see any calls for a slave revolt. You don't see anyone uh, in the New Testament anywhere saying, get yourself a sword, and while your master is asleep, cut his throat. Now there's a part of me that would like to see that in there. Because part of me calls out for justice against this unjust circumstance. But you don't see that. You don't see any information given to slaves that tells them how unjust their situation is or how slavery is sinful in and of itself. I suspect that's because if you are a slave, you already know that. You don't need to be told. You already know that this is an unjust set of circumstances, that it is not right, and there's no way to make it right. But because some people don't see those things in the text, they've wrongly concluded, even people in our own history as Americans, people have concluded that somehow that Jesus is perfectly cool with slavery. And, and there were American Christians who owned slaves in our history, which I find just staggering to me that they could be so blind to their sin. And yet they looked at this and they go, well, it doesn't say that you can't own slaves. But consider this. Consider how God describes Himself and the salvation that He offers. You know, one of the most frequently occurring words, most frequently occurring word pictures in the New Testament for salvation from God, you know what it is? The word redemption. And the people who receive it are among the redeemed. And it's a word that comes literally from the slave trade. And it pictures God as someone who goes into the slave market and buys someone who is a slave to sin and Satan and death and hell and sets them free and makes them members of his own house and gives them an inheritance as a child. And it is literally impossible for me to believe that a God who describes himself like that looks at the institution of slavery and says, well, that's fine. Those two things don't fit. God is not okay with this. But God is also not a God who tells us, oh, and by the way, go out and violently bring about an end to all unjust institutions on the earth. Because our sense of justice is not that finely honed. We're never called to be John Brown. We're never called to be Eric Robert Rudolph. But by the way, is God neutral between evil and justice? No, He is not. Remember, we're going to see this at the end of the book. 
when we get into the book of Revelation, there is a day coming when God will get rid of every evil thing and every evil person. But it will be God who does it. And the consistent call of the New Testament is don't take revenge. Don't take justice into your own hands. Leave room for God's wrath. So, with that in mind, let's look at the instructions uh, that we have here. First, what Paul says in, to slaves is this, that if you're living under this fundamentally unjust system, you need to work to transform it from the inside, beginning first with your own attitude and your own actions. And here's how that works. Verse 22 Obey your earthly masters in everything and do so not as people pleasers, but as people who fear the Lord. And what he means is that a Christian slave shouldn't merely obey his master when the master is watching. And by the way, wouldn't that be your tendency? Well, he can hold me as a slave, but he can't make me do things when he's not here. I'm going to do as much as I can to make it miserable to hold me. And Jesus calls them to do the most incredible thing in the world. To obey not when someone is watching, but even when they aren't. Because the Christian slaves ultimate goal, according to Paul, is never just pleasing the Master, it's pleasing the Lord. So your, so your service has to be sincere because the Lord not only sees what you do, but the heart behind how you do it. Verse 23 underlines the point. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. When I was growing up, my mother used to cite that verse to me, and she, because I would be, I would be out in the yard, working on something, stacking firewood or breaking rocks or whatever, and uh, you know, I'd be cussing my parents and <laughs> for putting me to work, doing whatever. And my mom would say, "Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. You're not working for me; you're working for Him." It was a good reminder. Even when you are in an unjust situation, that, by the way, this is not addressing parents, okay? Uh, you might feel like a slave if you're a kid, but trust me, you're not, okay? Um, but if you're in an unjust situation, living life as a slave, you need to lift your eyes up to what you're ultimately doing. You're not ultimately serving this man this woman who is the master. Ultimately, what you're doing is serving the Lord. And what Paul does in this command is he gives even the lowest of slaves dignity and honor in the Lord's eyes. If you were a slave in Roman society, you were the lowest of the low. You could have, you could have the fact that you were a slave tattooed on your forehead, and they did that. You could be branded with a hot iron like a cow to mark you as who you belong to. 
If you ran away, they would fit you with an iron collar around your neck that said run away and put a lock on you. The average lifespan of a slave was somewhere around 17 or 18 years. Because life was hard. You could be given the dirtiest of dirty jobs. You could be the biffy cleaner. You know what I'm talking about? The portable toilet guy. You ever wonder how those get clean? Like, if they were, if one of them was mine, I'd be just inclined to dig a hole and push it in, right? I'm not scrubbing that. I don't care. I'm not scrubbing that. But there are people who that's their job. And in, Ro in the Roman world, that, that kind of a job would be what you gave to a slave. And it would be awfully hard to have dignity in that situation. And Paul says, even if that's your job, even if you're in an unjust situation, even if you have the lowest, nastiest, most horrible situation imaginable, you have dignity because you are not serving this master, you're not doing this job, you are serving Jesus. And that's an amazing thing. The difference is not the job, but your heart and why you're doing it. Verse 24 and 25 gives slaves a huge amount of encouragement. And I, I love this connection between these two verses. Uh, verse 24, it talks, about, it talks about the fact that um, you know that from the Lord you will receive an inherit, the inheritance as your reward because you're serving the Lord Christ. Now, the inheritance is a broad term that encompasses lots of things. Uh, several books in the New Testament talk about crowns that people receive as their reward. Uh, several of them are mentioned in Revelation as rewards for uh, faithfully walking before the Lord and serving Him. And by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but you do need to know this, that going to heaven is not the only reward. That's the minimum. If you, if you are a person who faithfully walked with Jesus for your entire life, you receive a great reward. A massive inheritance. By the way, I think Twyla Ogburn, I don't know how big her mansion is, but it's big. And <laughs> When she gets to heaven, it'll be like, Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's where Twyla lives, up on that hill next to Jesus. I hope I get the, the guard shack out at the end of her driveway, <laughs> right? Uh, she was an amazing lady. And she was faithful to the Lord for 96 years. And she receives this great inheritance. If, on the other hand, you are a person who maybe came to faith in Jesus on your deathbed, and that's pretty much all there is to your life of faith, you're going to have a smaller inheritance, a lesser reward. You will still be with the Lord. You'll still be with the people of God, but your inheritance will not be as great. I don't know what all the gradations and all that are, but there are differences. And what Paul is doing is encouraging these people to say that, look, your situation is not 
how it is right now is not how it's always going to be. And you need to strive for a greater set of circumstances in heaven than you're enjoying now because there is reward coming. And the opportunity to have great reward and to have your status completely reversed is absolutely there in front of you. So seize hold of it because your inheritance is coming as you serve the Lord Christ in what you're doing. And it doesn't matter what the job is. It doesn't matter what the status is that you have here. Many who are first now will be last. And many who are last now will be first, according to Jesus, right? And, and Paul is encouraging them with that. But he also gives them another kind of encouragement. Verse 25. You see that? For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality with him. I love that verse. I do. Now I've told you before, we watch a lot of cop shows on our on our TV at home. A lot of proce police procedural type things. And the, what I love about them, and I watch HGTV and I watch cop shows, Okay. Um, I like HGTV because they take some place that's a dump and they transform it. And it's just, it's, to me, it's just a, like a living picture of the gospel, right? And, and then, uh, and I like car restoration for the same reason, right? They take this heap and they turn it into something amazing, which is exactly what Jesus does. So I love that. But I also like cop shows. And the reason I like them is they always get the bad guy at the end, right? It might take them 40 minutes, but they get him. And he goes off to jail, or he catches a bullet or something, right? And, it, and justice is done. Hallelujah, right? And what, what, what Paul is telling us and telling these people in these unjust circumstances is that there is a day of justice coming. There is a day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. And either your master will repent because of your testimony in the way that you serve him and he looks for an explanation as to how you who are a slave have a light inside of you that shines with the glory of the, of the gospel and Jesus' presence there. Or he will not repent. He will continue to be a wicked and unjust person and then God will deal with him. One or the other. But understand this, he says, there is no partiality. I love that part too. Because in this world, it is absolutely true that who you are, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm talking about reality now. Who you are matters. What status you have, what, what, what kind of political power that you have. You know, if I cheat on my taxes, I go to jail. If the governor cheats on his taxes, he gets to pay a fine. Right? Why is that? Because he's in a position of power. And I'm a peon. If you, if you have a lot of money and a lot of influence, you get different justice than if you rely 
upon the public defender because you have no money and no influence. But this is a reminder that the divine judge is not at all like that. He sees everything. And there is no status consciousness with him. He doesn't care how much money you had. He doesn't care what kind of position you had. He cares about whether you did what was right. And if you didn't, buckle your seatbelt because justice is coming for you. And I find that wonderfully encouraging because it means that there will be a day when God will straighten things out. I told the first service that that you know, they had that club up there in Sparling, Fluffers. And, and when it was open, every time I would drive by to go get coffee at the coffee hub, I would contemplate how, how much legal trouble and spiritual trouble I would be in with the Lord if I set it on fire. Um, <laughs> because I hate that place. And every place like it. Because of what it does to the women who are often forced into working in places like that. And because of what it does to the men who go in and patronize that place. I hate it. But again, I'm not called to be Eric Robert Rudolph, and neither was he. God doesn't call me to be the instrument of his justice in the world. But that doesn't mean there will be no justice. God will bring justice one day every evil institution, every act of sin, it will either be paid for at the cross or it will be paid at the great white throne. One or the other. And that comforts my soul. That enables me to be at peace even though there's great evil in the world. Because I know that it's, it, is, it is on a short leash. Because Jesus is coming. Now, one more thing here uh, that we want to look at, um, that Jesus transforms even slave masters, and he changes them into servants of Christ. It's been a minute since we read this verse, so let me read it for you again. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, you need to know a couple things on this. First of all, it was pretty rare for a slave owner to be part of the early church. We know specifically of one, Philemon. Uh, and the reason that it was pretty rare is that you had to be part of the elite in society to be a slave owner. You had to have a certain level of wealth in order to do that. And most of the people in the early church were not people of means. They didn't have any money. They were ordinary, common folks. They weren't influential. Um, it was also, at this time, illegal, and at a minimum very difficult, to set your slaves free even if you wanted to, because Roman law made that challenging. When the Roman Empire was expanding, the way that they got their massive number of slaves was they... Uh, every place they took over, they just enslaved everybody. 
And so when the Seleucid Empire fell, they took everyone within it except for the very poor who they left to work the land. They took everybody else and put them in chains and enslaved them. When they took North Africa, same thing. They enslaved everybody. When, uh, whenever they, they took Gaul, which is modern-day France, they enslaved the whole population. Everybody they captured. But eventually, your empire is at its fullest extent, and you, you run out of a supply of people you can just forcibly take captive. And so what they did was to ensure that there would always be generation after generation more and more slaves. It was just forbid anybody from setting them free. And so if you were a slave owner and then you became a Christian, what do you do in that circumstance? You say, well, I don't want to be a slave owner anymore. And so I'm going to get rid of all my slaves. Well, that probably means selling them to someone else. On the other hand, um, it's awfully easy to be seduced by the culture and not even notice that what you're doing is out of phase with what Jesus calls you to do. And so, Je and so Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, gives this radical command. And it may not seem radical, but it is. It says, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Think about that for just a second. You're talking about a fundamentally unjust institution. There is no way to treat someone in an unjust institution who is a victim of this justly and fairly and keep them in the same status they were in. But what is this a call to do? It's a call to transform the institution from the inside. That if you're a Christian, you may still technically legally own this person, but you can't treat them as if you do. They may still live in your house and be regarded legally as part of your property, but you can't treat them like property. You need to treat them like a member of your own family because that's what they are. That's what they are. So, Christianity isn't a calling to violent revolution. It's a calling to gospel transformation, to change people's hearts in such a way that they stop doing evil, they, that they stop pursuing sin. And that's what Paul is calling to, uh, these masters to, to be just and fair. And obeying that will naturally lead you either to set them free, or if that's impossible, to so changing the relationship that it doesn't look anything like what it was before. Now, we're going to address these issues more in a couple of weeks when we get into Philemon. But until then, let me just address a couple areas that how I think Jesus wants us to respond to this text. First of all, those of you who are part of the elite in our culture, and some of you are, some of you move in circles of wealth and influence and power and uh, whatever status you have, remember this, that you also have a master. Even if you're the big boss where you are, you also have a master. 
And he is impartial in how he judges people, and he will not consider your status as worth anything in his eyes. As your master, he will judge based on whether you treat people under you with justice and fairness. And his goal for you is to have a transformed heart that treats people justly and fairly, regardless of where they stand on the ladder in relationship to you. Now, for the rest of us, remember this. God sees everything that you deal with. He, he sees every bit of it. I read Psalm 39, uh, I'm sorry, 139 yesterday, where it talks about how God is with us wherever we go. If we rise on the wings of the morning, if we, if we go to the far side of the sea, if we go down to the depths, God is there in all these places. And guess what? You may think that you're in a situation that is so unfair, that is so unjust, that is so crying out for rectification from God, and you cannot, you cannot see a way out of it. Know this, God sees you where you are. God sees you where you are. And He not only sees, He rewards you for your responding faithfully to Him in that situation. And if you respond as Jesus calls you to respond in this text and others like it, if you live your life to honor Christ, He will honor you in return. Everything. And I mean everything can be and is service to Christ and worship of Christ if your heart is in it to do it to serve Him. Even if it's even if it's an unjust institution, even if you're in a terrible situation, if you do it to serve the Lord, it is received from the Lord in service to Him. And that's worth bearing in mind too. Even the worst things and the worst people can be transformed by Jesus in the gospel. So with that in mind, let's pray and then let's sing some more together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you work in our world, that you see the injustice and the oppression that is within it and you have a response to it. You call us to to bear up under unjust circumstances and to transform people through the power of the gospel being lived out as we serve you even in our pain, even in the midst of our, our suffering, Father, if we endure it as serving you, Father, you are honored and will honor us. And Father, you even change the slave master into your servant. And you make wicked people into God-honoring people. And no one else can do that. And Father, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the transformation the gospel brings. And we pray, Father, that we might look forward to the day when you do bring an end to every evil and unjust system in person. And in the meantime work to transform the world through the gospel. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.